Well, Wes and I were having this conversation before the show started, and it went something like this. It was, in some ways, Linux has suffered greatly by having its focus scattered across so many different initiatives and so many different efforts. You know, you have so many different takes even just on GTK desktops, let alone GNOME versus Plasma. Uh, you know, even in the Plasma space, you've got LXQ. There's all these different iterations. And you look at, like, the Apple model or the Windows model, and you go, if we just had a team that focused on a singular application— it would, things would be a lot better. And the example you went to was um, Gparted, right? Oh, yeah, right. Gparted's fine, but it really hasn't gotten a ton better. And there's other partition managers like Kpart or whatever it is that are fine, but they're not like the definitive beat-all tools. And if we were developing one partition manager, it would probably be pretty great at this point. And I think all of us have always, you know, we've thought about that. But in light of the news of IBM buying Red Hat, you kind of have to appreciate the, I don't know what to call it. There's like up, upsides of this diversity of, of D- thought, right? Yeah. We like, have less net things per unit, but right. we have a lot of redundancy. It takes us way longer to get there in some cases, but we also are not victim to the bus factor as much. Linux could be hurt if, say, all of Red Hat's open source desktop initiatives went away in a year. Desktop Linux would be hurt, but that that code would still be free software. It wouldn't end desktop Linux. And those contributors that worked at Red Hat could still decide to contribute. They and had, new people could pick it up. Like, yeah, there's there's a lot of options. So it's it is both a blessing and a curse in a sense, because sometimes it means we can't have the shiniest, but it also means you really can't take it away from us. Yeah, I think that's why you have to be careful. When you I mean, you just said if it goes away. I mean, it, it won't go away. It's free software. It's out on the internet. Right. None of this stuff is going to go away. And I, 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 I'm a glass half full kind of guy, and I, I don't have any inside knowledge of the IBM Red Hat deal, but I can't see them throwing away that giant body of good free software. Um, I, I just can't see that happening. Um, and so, and even if it did, the software's still out there. People will coalesce around it who are passionate about it and will keep it going, just like every other free software project that gets dumped by, you know, um, a corporation. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 273 for October 30th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's sort of wishing it was a stock advice show right now. (laughs) My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Oh, some of that Red Hat stock would be looking pretty good. We have a big show for you this week. I'm back from the BSD den, went down, hanged out, meet BSD at the Intel campus. I'll give you my book report on how it went at Meet BSD. Then we'll get into some community news. Well, actually, we'll start with some community news, including that massive IBM buying Red Hat story, but there's other things too to talk about. In fact, there's quite a bit of community news that I would still consider this a packed news show. Oh yeah, even if that didn't happen, yeah. it's a giant show. And we've been doing less news, but there's just so much we got to talk about. So much going on. The community keeps making news. It's great. It's it's a good time to be a Linux user. And then today, as we record, the latest and greatest Fedora, Fedora 29 is out. We'll give you our first impressions of Fedora 29 and I'll tell you about my favorite feature that I am so excited to see finally land in Fedora. Also, 
my report, good or bad, <laughs> on how my Fedora Cloud upgrade went. This is the one that I've been upgrading for a while now, and it's it's now also the home to my in production NextCloud instance. So this it mattered this more than counts. It was yeah. This upgrade really counted. So I'll give you my my report on how that upgrade went as well. Then some follow up items from the past couple of episodes, as well as a huge announcement for a friend of the show, and then. A couple of workarounds if you're sticking with Dropbox and don't feel like formatting your disk. Give you a couple of workarounds for that. I can tell you're thinking about this a lot. Who, me? Yeah, you. But before we go any further, we got to bring in that virtual lug. Time, appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Hello, everybody. we got Eric in there, Minimech, Popey, Sean, and is that two Seans? No, C. I look, I'm an old man and wimpy. It's good to have you guys in there. Rumor has it a few others may be trickling in as the show goes along. Speaking, 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 Wes, speaking of uh, trickling in, Mr. Linus Torvalds is trickling back into command of the Linux kernel. The one, the only. Uh, this is actually kind of old news now by the time we're talking about it in this show. I mean, the Ubuntu podcast guys talked about it on last Thursday. It was fresh for them. They got the Ubuntu podcast guys uh, were the first, I believe, to air. With the story. Yeah. Look at you guys over there, Mr. Breaking News over there at the uh, Ubuntu Podcast. This is CNN Breaking News. And, uh, but you don't have to watch CNN. You can just listen to the, the great Ubuntu Podcast instead. Y- I like that more. way better. It's way better. Yeah. So this is kind of old news, but I just wanted to kind of close the loop on this story. Um, Greg KH posted in the uh, Kernel 4.19 release announcement. And it's a long post. And in there, he writes into, he writes a couple of things that I thought were were powerful statements, powerful, that we should read here on the show. He says, these past few months have been a tough one for our community, as it is our community that is fighting from within itself, the prodding from others out- and with prodding from outside. Don't fall into the cycle of arguing about those others. That is the trap that countless communities have fallen into over the centuries. We all share the same goal. Let us never lose sight of that. It's good. That's a good message. I mean, it's and it's true, right? I mean, we're all... We're all here for the same reason, to support the same project, to help the project grow. The thing that resonates there with me, Mr. Wes, uh, the real synergy I got with that, you know, the uh, top-level thing there. I'll stop. That, I'll stop. The, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, was um, the uh, this is something that has uh, affected countless communities over the centuries. Like, it's a, it's a human nature thing. It's not a Linux kernel mailing list thing. And that's true, right? I mean, this is a human activity done by lots of humans with different motivations and goals, and that's what makes it so difficult. He wraps it up. With uh, And with all of that, Linus, I'm handing the kernel tree back to you. You can have the joy of dealing with the next merge window. I'm out of here. That's good. It's good to see Linus back. Um, everybody's been watching um, to see what, how Linus behaves. <laughs> the, like, the, the, the spotlight was on him before, but holy crap. Now it's like everything he's writing is being analyzed by the news media. Have you seen this? Like... It, like people are just copy and pasting like mail his entire post. And, yeah, like, right. he writes something and then it's news now. <laughs> oh, that's annoying. Let the man work. Mm. I don't know, Mumble Room, any take on Linus being back? Was that a long enough break for him to really make uh, an actual substantive change? What do you guys think? It's long enough for him to um, put an email filter on his email system. So yeah, probably. Is that the takeaway here? Is that the, is that the lesson that Linus learned? Because that's what everybody's talking about. Well, it looks like he put a filter yeah. on. Uh, it will be the most popular email filter in history, and everyone will be using it this time <laughs> next year. There will be whole businesses businesses built on top of it, <laughs> and IBM will buy them. <laughs> there it is. 
I would hope the willingness to implement a, f- a filter, like, I don't think any of this is a thing you learn in a month. Like, hopefully it just means that he's thinking about it. He's, you know, these are things he's aware of and that there's a little more focus on the, the health of the community. Yeah, it's an ongoing thing. Right, yeah, it has to be. Yeah, that's a good point, Wes. That's very wise. That was sage. I like that. This is something I could use some sage wisdom for. Now, uh, Michael Arable over at Pharonix, and I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen confirmation of this anywhere else. Um, so... Keep yeah, that in mind, right. mm. but because it seems like big news, he's reporting that Samsung has apparently shut down the Samsung Open Source Group, uh, commonly known as Samsung OSG, which you'll see like in their kernel contributions and whatnot. Uh, and it appears that they are uh, disbanding this division, which is responsible for quite a bit of contribution contributions. Um, they've been around since 2012. They employ a dozen developers for a number of years now. Yeah, and I mean, they've contributed to things like, well, Wayland, Xorg, Cairo, Clang, GStreamer, FFmpeg, and, of course, a whole bunch to that there Linux kernel we yeah. were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so it would kind of be a big deal, especially you got to wonder about Wayland if uh, they were to go away. They're usually in the top five kernel con- contributors, like total, in the top five. So I mean, and this just feels very, very timely, right, where corporations play a big part and they are not obligated to in open source development. So we just, right, we're lucky to have them. We benefit from this. It's like, why, now, why are they closing this? Is this maybe they're done. Like, hey, we yeah. got everything we needed. All right, uh, well, Google says we're going to have to use this kernel for the next X amount of years, so we don't have to develop any new drivers for a while. We're out. See ya. But that's not how it works. That's not how software development works. So, it you know, it could be a hundred things. It could be just a restructuring. Right, they'll still do open source work. It's just not under one mm. umbrella anymore. One, it's a good question. One hopes, Wes. One, one certainly hopes because it, it is funny. I'm not. I'm not Samsung's biggest fan. But it seems like they've made genuine contributions that that really have made a difference. I mean, you look they're in the top five. That matters. That matters. So hopefully it's not a total abandonment. It also makes me think about just, uh, you know, we look at like Linux kernel contributors. But when, when a company contributes across so many projects, we don't often get a view into just all the things they're doing. You might see pockets of that. Oh, they support Krita or whatever. But a lot of these companies are pretty, pretty broad support. You know, you're touching on something there that really uh, grinds my gears, Wes. And that is that uh, a lot of times these companies are contributing to open source and they do it kind of quietly. Like you don't even, you're right. not even aware of what they're doing. And uh, there's a real resistance to them talking about it. They don't, and I, I, tell, I say this from somebody who tries to talk to them about it. And it's, they'll talk to you um, in like a non-formal setting off air. But they won't talk to you in any official capacity. And, and when you go to events, in a lot of cases, they won't even talk to me. Like, I can't, I'm not allowed to, like, speak to an engineer. Like, if the engineer realizes that I'm from the media, then they go grab the PR person. And I have to talk to the PR person. And then if I have questions, I have to schedule it. And, like, I just completely lose all access. They don't, they don't want to talk about it. And I think it's for... Is this still like a, a business enterprise sort of uncomfortability with open source? Like it's okay to do the lawyers vet things, but it's not our business line. It's not our core thing. We don't want to talk about it. Or it's a liability thing, like from the patent wars. Or it could be simple things like, you know, companies like Samsung work on, yes, stuff like Wayland, but you look at where they put it. They may be developing IVI systems for large motor vehicle yeah. manufacturers. And those people, those motor vehicle manufacturers are uh, probably the kind of people who don't want this kind of information revealed because it's so competitive, such a cutthroat market. They don't want some engineer at the bottom of the stack at Samsung revealing that there's some deal going on for the next generation infotainment system in their new car that's not even out yet. Have you run into this uh, working, you know, through Canonical? Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's frustrating, isn't it? 
Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've said my piece. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it, you, but going just what you said that made me think about this is like, we don't really have a great window into what their contributions were. So, how do we quantify what the loss is? Yeah, exactly. Like, we, we have an idea by, oh, well, here's a percentage of code contributions to the Linux kernel. That seems valuable, but it doesn't really tell me what. Is it is it support for uh, some stu- stupid vibrator in a Samsung phone somewhere? I mean, is that, what that, is that what that kernel contribution was? Or was it to make it possible for Wayland to render the a Firefox pop-up on my... Very different scales, yeah. There's way more development that happens outside of the Linux kernel as well that, you know, mm-hmm. revolves around hardware enablement and what have you. Yeah, yeah, boy. There's, we could do a whole episode on that, really. Uh, it's a fascinating world. I got I got some insight into that when I was down at Dell and I was watching how they work upstream with uh, different hardware OEMs. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. But I'd like to take a moment and talk about some rapid pace development around Proton. You can now play 2,600 Windows games on Linux via that Steam Play, which is using Proton. Underneath that is that is massive. That is a huge accomplishment, and along with this, kind of a, an addendum to this, is the launch of ProtonDB at protondb.com. I'd like you guys just to know about this. You may remember when we first talked about Steam Play on this show. I mentioned there was a Google Docs spreadsheet that was keeping track of the games that was compatible. Oh yeah, right. Well, that's now developed into protondb.com, and. <laughs> <laughs> it got so popular, they they basically broke Google Docs. They For a while, they were just breaking Google Docs. It was pretty funny. Um, so they have all kinds of compatibility reports and whatnot. And to celebrate the dot-com launch, they're also uh, redesigning the look of the overall database. Like, they're making it look really nice, get the initial data reports in there so it's easier for people to see what the compatibility expectations are. And uh, it's sort of remarkable to me. Oh, there's some good games in here, too. I mean, gosh classics to modern stuff like mm-hmm. it's, it's all over the map yeah it's remarkable to me that they've gone to 2500 games and this community uh that looks almost like it's a commercial venture like this site this proton db oh, it's site well, it's well made yeah it's, it's branded pretty nicely doesn't look bad Eighteen thousand four hundred and fifty nine compatibility reports in this database <laughs> For, for those 2,000 games. So it's the year of the Linux gaming <laughs> desktop? And just to circle back again on another topic is I've now gotten multiple confirmations. And aren't you one of them, actually? People in the Google Stream beta, that, that the streaming... Oh, yeah, right. Uh, streaming video games under GNU slash Linux. Hey, it's happening. 15 megabits is like the absolute minimum it's going to work with something around there. Yeah, right. And uh, you have to have um, like less than 5% packet loss. And one uh, percent packet lo- less than one percent is recommended. And um, for a while, it wanted you to have an external controller to plug in as mm-hmm. well. I don't know if that's still true. I don't know. I don't think so. Actually, it sounds like it's not. So, so you combine that streaming system with Proton. It is. It's a really good time to be a hardcore gamer like Wimpy. I mean, Wimpy's a hardcore gamer. But hardcore. I'm just pretty excited. Is there? Have you uh, have you tried any of these Wimpy with all the travels you've been doing? Have you had a chance to try the Proton thing out? Not while I've been traveling, but at home I have. I've uh, invested in probably more than a dozen uh, racing games that were originally <laughs> launched for Windows. <laughs> and, uh, you know, some of the some of the ones I enjoyed on the PS3 years ago, some of the Need for Speed series, and uh, I'm playing those quite happily now on my Linux desktop. Oh, Very so, happy. Um, I have a question for you. Uh, I, I thought I saw you on Twitter posting pictures of a ThinkPad, but I thought you got a new XPS. 
or a new Dell 15? I went I went with ThinkPad in the end. Yeah, so I have the new no, ThinkPad now. No, really? That monster yeah. P1. Gosh. Yeah. Oh, and and how has it been? Have you had have you had much of a chance to play with it? I'm using it right now. <laughs> and you upgraded what was it? The RAM and the drive in that thing? Uh, well, I couldn't upgrade the RAM post market because ah. only major OEMs can actually get the 32 gig DIMMs. Um, so that delayed the order, in fact. Oh, wow. So I think I may have been the first person to actually order one of these with 64 gigs of RAM. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to us? <laughs> yeah, but um, so I couldn't I couldn't source those aftermarket, so I had to to get it ordered with that. But I ordered it with the cheapest uh, SSD option, which was a two fifty six gig SSD, and then purchased um, some nine seventy Evos, a five twelve, and a two terabyte. So two drives. Um, yeah. So I've left Windows on the on the drive it came with. Sure. Put the two new drives in, and I've got 500 gig uh, boot partition and a two terabyte home partition. <laughs> oh my gosh! What do you need two terabytes? Is that for VMs for home drive? Think about how many Electron apps he runs. It's for all the code that I work on and all of the VMs. Just you know, just copies of data, just stuff. You know, this I, is a I've five got, year machine at least. Yeah, I think so. In fact, I've since I've I've had it for a few days now because um, I obviously got back at the weekend and it had arrived whilst I'd been away. Um, and I've decided to go all in with this, so I've actually ordered the um, the Thunderbolt docking station for it, and I'm going to set that up and actually use this as not just my laptop, but my main workstation for work. So I will plug it into the Thunderbolt dock, which connects to the screens and everything else. Have you decided which Thunderbolt dock you're going with? Because I've been considering doing the same thing. Yeah, there's a new one that Lenovo have released. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that has an adapter that connects alongside the... The power, so the power adapter in the laptop is next to one of the Thunderbolt ports, and they've made a cable which is like connects to both of those in one connector. Do you have a link? I'd love. I, that's that's it right there. That's what I want. Yeah, I can I can look one up and send oh, it over to you. This is great. So does this does this mean if you're switching away from the Dell to the ThinkPad, I'm not going to be looking up your nose whenever we're having video chats? <laughs> this is true. Uh, in fact, it sounds ridiculous, right? But the placement of the mm -hmm. webcam was actually a serious consideration in all of this, and I would say was actually the clinching feature that took me over the edge because everyone talks about how small the Dell bezels are, but the bezels yes. on this are also very small too. Yeah. Apple, Apple announced a new MacBook uh, with small bezels today. And one of the things they specifically took time in the announcement to call out was that they had placed the camera at the top of the screen <laughs> because people care about that kind of thing. And it, I, I, I completely agree doing meetings. Uh, I do zoom meetings a lot now, a lot of zoom meetings a Zoom, and uh, they're all video. Everybody's looking at my face. So that that was an issue when I was reviewing the Precision, or I'm sorry, the, uh, when I was using the XPS, and the Precision has the same same thing. Uh, but so yeah. you wouldn't want to just carry around like a little C920 or whatever? No, no way. No, I don't think so. But what so. if you already have to live the dongle lifestyle? Like you've no, already got your little no, go bag. the cord. The cord's no good. It's long. Well, congratulations, Wimpy. This, one, this one's got um, a mini RJ45 port in it which is a proper oh, gigabit yeah. ethernet port and it has a little stub that expands that into a regular rj45 so it has proper proper ethernet on it as well and it's got you know usb a and usb c ports on it and hdmi ports and head jack ports it's 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 got plenty of io 
this is a serious this is a serious dock. Uh, this is this is not cheap, but it's really nice. Yeah, there's a version of that that's more expensive that's got um, an Nvidia graphics card in it as well. Oh, was I not just you, talking about you that? You just the pre- were before we started going on there. I was like, you know, what would be really nice is to do an eGPU Thunderbolt dock. Yeah, well, I don't need that because I've already got the eGPU. So I'm just getting the one that's <laughs> the, the you know connect all of your stuff up. Yeah. Ooh, man. Well. I, uh, I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on how the dock works out. Cause I think I want to pick one up too. So I, I, yeah. I may live vicariously through you for a bit. Well, speaking of new hardware, our friends at system 76 have been teasing this Thelio system oh, yes, for a they while. Have. And, uh, we've got some details. Yeah. Let's, okay. So they're not actually going to announce it until, well, November 1st. So it's, it's soon. But you don't actually have to. You don't have to wait that long. They're calling them open hardware systems, and in theory, they're shipping in, in December. Yeah, and so uh, I had uh, the fortune of uh, Carl willing to be able to stay up late and email exchange with me last night to answer some of my questions about what do they mean by open hardware? Where's the innovation here? What's you know what's different about this? And uh, so I got some insight into that. Oh. And, you know, I, I think the first thing I want to clarify is what makes Thelio open hardware? Because that's, I think, a big question here. And according to them, Thelio's design that they've been working on for more than three years now is completely open source. Uh, anyone can study, modify, distribute, make, and sell the design of the hardware. You know, I'll get into that again in a second. I'll come back to that. But another part that I think is maybe the part that's more interesting to the audience is... To, they, he uh, he writes in a blog post, to further our open computer ambition, we are working to remove functionality from the proprietary mainboard, like the motherboard. Okay. To that end, we've designed Thelio IO, a daughter board that manages thermal and chassis control, also providing storage backplane for the drives in Thelio. So they've got this daughter board system where they're going to be moving the proprietary functionality. I see. So all of your little proprietary blobs or chipsets that need them Black boxes, that's on one board, and then just standard, more open components can be on the actual main board. Yeah, exactly. So I had uh, I had an email thread back and forth with Carl, and um, this machine, first of all, they're going to have three SKUs of it, essentially, like big, bigger, and massive. <laughs> oh. And um, they're going to be desktop x86 workstations okay. with a ton of horsepower. Like beefy. The thing they're doing that it's hard to describe in audio, but when you see it in pictures, looks really sharp, is they've worked on this custom case design that even the back end of it's beautiful. Like, it's just really clean. But the but it is a combination of brushed metal with, like, a, like a metal uh, powder-coated finishing. Oh, yeah, premium. Really nice. And wood. Wait, wood? And wood. So, oh. like, maple's in there, and it looks really, it's got this beautiful contrast between the black and the maple wood. And there's no seams, like, no no bumps. This sounds like the, a premium desktop. It looks really good. Like the, So, this one goes on the desk, not under the desk. Yeah, it looks really good. I, I, there's, I won't share all the details, but the, what I did get to see and what I did, what I did learn about it, it looks like a killer Linux desktop. Um, just something that they've put probably more effort into than I think they've ever put into any other product. And um, it's a big commitment because this is the first thing they're making in this new factory. Is this? Is this? Is that right? Okay. And then he says, long so term, the testing ground. Yeah, long term, their goal is to to work uh, to try to open the rest of the hardware in the machine. Right, because right now it sounds like open hardware kind of means like open specs. Like here's how you put all these proprietary parts together, and with some effort made to you know use less of them. I um. 
you know, I can I can tell Carl's really excited about it, and he got me excited about it. I would say after I read his description of the machine, it exceeded what my expectations were of what they would be working on. And, uh, I mean, we, we have pretty soon, November 1st. That's pretty soon. You're right around the corner. So we'll find out more about it. But uh, And I, I might get a chance to fly out there and see it in person, too, before it's shipping. Um, but if I was in the market for a Linux desktop right now, I would 100% wait until yeah, November 1st. to keep 1st. your eyes on. Because just the cases alone look gorgeous. And so, and then you, the hardware they're putting in this thing is pretty top-end. It's pretty top-end hardware. And the prices are pretty reasonable. So it's if you're in the market, I would definitely be waiting for a Linux desktop right now. And I love that idea of a really powerful Linux desktop and a nice, light, portable laptop to go with it. Yeah. I did get a little peek. I got a little peek at the, machi- at the machine she's baking. She's baking in the chat room asking if I got to see a little. And, uh, yeah, this is got this is going to be big for them. And Carl's, uh, you know, you can tell that uh, he's really passionate about it because he's taking the time, Colorado time, to chat with me at night, where I'm in the Pacific time zone. It's nighttime for me. Yeah, right. That's some that's some real user, a real creator evangelism. And right he's there. yeah, and he's talking about it, and in, in you know, in ways you can really tell he's very proud of it. And it does the pictures I got to see are really sharp. I think when you guys get to see it, you're going to get to see even more than I got to see when it does go public. Is I think you're going to be pretty impressed. So yeah, I the Thelio hype is real. It isn't an you know some people are hoping it's a Risk Five system that would be totally open. Um, it isn't like that, but I think their 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 innovation here is this daughterboard system. I mean, it's probably a good thing, right? Like we don't want them to bite off more than they can chew and fail. It's probably better to go in small incremental steps. They'll get their new facilities up and running. They'll get this guy going provide more revenue for them to work on, you know, slowly building up these relationships and hopefully freeing more of it. Make for a great plasma workstation. Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Frequent virtual lug contributor and friend of the show, Alex, uh, had reached a major milestone himself recently. His project, Linux Server IO, his project and the team over there just passed 1 billion total polls from Docker Hub. 1 billion polls. So congratulations to Linux Server IO. I've actually, before we even knew Alex, I bumped into Linux Server IO a couple of times just pulling down, um, I think it was like an NZB client or something I was pulling off of Docker There's Hub. There's a lot of popular software packaged up by them. Yeah. A billion, you know, that really shows you the size and scale of Docker Hub. When, a, when you can start a project like this and you package up applications that have been packaged many a time before in various formats, and you put it up on Docker Hub and it gets a billion, a billion downloads. Over a billion. So congratulations to them. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of hard work, some good insights there. Go check out go check that out and then go use some of their uh, you know, yeah. some cool applications you can run easily. It's a great mix, you know, because you can throw it up on your own machine, a laptop or a VPS and try out something that it's all packaged up and ready to go, and you can at least see if you like it, and then go build it yourself if you want, or stick with the image. All right. We gotta do something, because this next story. <sighs> How do we get there? We've got to talk about the this. inescapable story of the week. I don't think I'd ever be ready. I think that's it. I will. I will, there's never going to be a point in which we're, I am ready. We're to still talk a about. Chuck. All right, I got one. I got something. Okay, Wes, I'm going to give you a little quiz. Are you oh, ready? Oh, okay, okay. Mr. Payne, see if you can guess the project. With 80 components tracked, 55 of those components at 100% completion, and many other components with significant progress, what? beloved open source project is near 80% done for its next major version. Well, I was about to guess Linux Mint, but it sounds like, oh, I don't know if that's there. I don't know if that's there. Spoiler! <laughs> no, you can't, you can't do that one. No. Okay, well, you said open source, so it's not Duke Nukem Forever, despite nope. all of our hopes. You ready? Oh. You got a guess? 
what could it be? There's just so many good options. Okay, I'm just going to say that it's got to be the next gnome release. Oh, you're close. You're close. Uh, so, with 80, 80 components tracked, 55 at 100% completion, and many others with significant progress, XFCE 4.14 is 80% done. And they've just updated the roadmap. It's time for one last big push, and then you're going to get new XFCE goodness Hey yo! after this long, long wait. That story was really for one member of our audience, and that's our editor. And now it is time for us to actually we get— got to keep him happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's contractually obligated for us to talk about XFCE once every quarter. All right, so on Sunday, <clears throat> IBM and Red Hat announced that IBM would be purchasing Red Hat and becoming the world's, as they put it, number one hybrid cloud provider— um, which is pretty easy when you're making up a term. Red Hat is being purchased for $34 billion. That's over 60% of their value on Friday when the stock market closed. And today, after the news has had time to hit the market, uh, depending on when you check it, obviously, these things are going to come and go. But when we checked it, Red Hat stock was up, I think, 34% on the news. Whoop. No, 45% on the news. Damn. <laughs> what? <laughs> Damn. 45%. Damn. This is one of those stories that you didn't ever really expect. Uh, in all well, fairness— one, you probably don't think that much about IBM, like unless you're an enterprise, right? You, fair you don't point. talk about it. Fair, fair point. And two, I just sort of assumed Red Hat wasn't for sale. Um I guess I've been struggling with this in a way that felt really personal to me because I'm not a Red Hat employee. I'm not even a Red Hat user. In fact, I don't even like using RHEL. I just, uh, for some reason, though, I still have, I've, I've felt a really personal struggle with this one. And um, I think part of that is I feel like the 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 great wars of the late 90s, early 2000s were for nothing. Like, what was it all for? Because in 2018, Microsoft is one of the key open source contributors and now owns GitHub officially. That's gone through as of Monday. And the star rebel, the shining open source revenue generator, Red Hat, is now owned by an establishment company, or is going to be, IBM. Like all of our trailblazing and cause fighting, and like we went through so much. Like in the 90s, Microsoft was so dominant. And, and that by, by, by the late 90s and early 2000s, we had all of these projects. We had wine and mono and all of these attempts to just coexist in a world that was dominated by Microsoft. And we finally get through all of that, and it, we look back at it, what was it all for? And I feel the same way with Red Hat being bought by IBM. I thought they would be the ones buying IBM. I thought they would be the ones buying Amazon. Not the other way around. That's not the way I saw it going down. So I, I just, I don't know, the old man in me just really sort of took it hard a little bit. Isn't this something, though, that we always had to be aware of? I mean, it's kind of like using a proprietary service where you've said it many times, right? Like, you use it, but you know that it could go away, it could change, the business could fold, or they could just stop interrupting with however you like using it. And, yeah. I mean, for as long as Red Hat's been public, 
you know, it's a for-profit corporation. Right. They may have a culture that really likes open source, but that's not why it exists. Right, and as Red Hat will tell you, uh, they don't have any intellectual property. They have staff, and they give away all their software. They have been a services company right. for a very long time. They were one of their early services companies. Um, that's what they make their money on, is the services around the open source software that they sell, and in some cases, the closed source software they sell. They have been more like IBM for a very long time than we'd like to acknowledge. Because we like to look at the things that they do that feel uh, like um, like the open source fairy delivering us great software. You know, we get things like Network Manager, and we get things like Pulse Audio, and SystemD, and Pipewire, which we just recently talked about, and so many other fundamental technologies, Flatpak, et cetera, et cetera, that don't really seem to have a direct cloud angle, don't have a direct services industry angle, but yet are extremely useful and beneficial to all Linux distributions. And that's the thing that we like to talk about. That's how we like to look at Red Hat in that light. But the reality is Red Hat is a for-profit public company who makes money selling services. Much more like IBM than we'd like to admit. But it still was shocking to see it. Like I said, I think I always expected that Red Hat wasn't for sale and that they would be the ones doing the buying. Right, they've been our juggernaut. They're the ones like, look, Linux can make money. The services, open source model, it can make money. It, it makes sense. These are good philosophies to build a company on. And, and obviously that's still true, but they obviously had a little bit of a special culture too. And, and how much of that can stay, will stay, we just don't know. But the big difference between IBM and Red Hat, I think, is that I mean, how much does IBM really give back to the community, whereas Red Hat seriously has multiple full-time employees? They have two or three that work for the GNOME Foundation. They have others that work on other projects. Uh, some people have been hired by Red Hat just to keep working on those those essential applications that we need. Yeah, I, I, it's it's hard to really think of what major contributions IBM has made to the industry in general recently. Well, I think it is another case that we kind of talked about before where they do have a lot of contributions to open source in their history uh, in, a, in a broad manner, but they don't yeah. they don't talk about it, right? They don't. Red Hat talked about it. It was a big thing that they did. The people they employed were very prominent in the community. And you're so it is right. They have both a decent history of open source contribution, but they don't do it in the same way. They don't exactly have the same attitude, and they don't spend all their time talking about it, especially from like the business executive side. Right. That's a big part of Red Hat's branding is Jim Whitehurst, open culture, open exactly. source. They wrote a book about they it. They talk about it at the very top, whereas IBM, it's like an implementation detail. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, when, when I first saw this news too, the first question that I tried to frame all of this in was, is it possible that the new owner could be a better owner of what Red Hat has, like their, Red Hat's properties? Can they be a, could IBM be a better owner of those things? Can IBM be a better owner? Can they can they own this stack better than Red Hat can? I don't know. I don't know. But I think the one thing that I did recall is that a long time ago, like back in 2000, 2001, IBM made a hard play into Linux. They just made this abrupt turn, and they announced a billion-dollar investment in Linux, and they hired... Um, a, a whole crew to film these Linux commercials. Oh, yeah. And one of my favorite had uh, Captain Cisco in it. 1991 Helsinki, a 21-year-old student named Linus Torvalds writes a new computer operating system. He calls it Linux, then does something revolutionary. He gives it away, free, over the internet. The powers that be dismiss him as an eccentric, a freak. But everywhere coders and free thinkers embrace Linux, improve and refine it. Now the forces of openness have a powerful and unexpected new ally. 
different kind of world. You need a different kind of software. That IBM went away for a while, and they became a services sales company. And I wonder if we're seeing IBM return to that. That is what I hope is happening. I mean, they do, they've done a lot of good stuff, right? A lot of good engineering work has come out of them. And you're right, they haven't really kept up. Maybe a question is, can you can you do that? Can you How much can new blood be injected into a company? Is this really going to change things? Can how, What is their capacity for change? I have heard from... Um, more than five, less than 10, <laughs> I'll just put it that way, Red Hat employees now who are very not happy. They are very not happy. I would say panic and disparity is the tone. Um, interestingly enough, I've also heard from people who do not work at Red Hat but know people really well who work at Red Hat, and they say they're pumped. So there is some, there is some people inside that are very excited. But the people I heard about... They're primarily concerned about things like they have this memo list internally that's a very expose kind of thing. They're worried that's going to get shut down. They have a very unique culture. They're worried that right, that's going that to get shut like down. Right, that seems like a lot that's, that can be difficult. Yeah. So there's internally, uh, the theme sort of is, I work at Red Hat because this is Red Hat, and I am passionate about open source, and I wanted to work somewhere where my open source software would ship to end users and make a difference. And that's why I'm at Red Hat, because it's Red Hat. Not because it's IBM. And the thing that Jim Whitehurst knows very well is Red Hat's real value is the software developers. That's the talent. Their engineers are their most valuable asset because everything else is free for the most part. You know, all of their source code stuff, it's free. The the, the source RPMs that they still, you know, that is free. And so the developers are their real talent. And if they leave because it's no longer Red Hat, then this deal loses a ton of its value. Um, I, I, a couple of other interesting things I have grokked from my conversations with friends is the way this is being sold to the staff right now is the reason Red Hat won't change. The reason why Red Hat will remain its own independent entity within IBM is because that is the true value of Red Hat. The way they phrase it is Red Hat needs to remain Switzerland. Red Hat has to be this independent, non-vendor, lock-in, neutral platform that IBM sales teams can go to these high-end clients and sell a solution that doesn't have, quote, vendor lock-in. So the way IBM CEO frames this, she says that essentially they have clients that are so big it would blow your mind. The greatest clients ever. They're the best clients. And that 80% of their workload is not yet in the cloud. See, that first 20% that's in the cloud was all the easy stuff, the stuff that's, quote, cloud native. But now, now it's time for hybrid cloud. And this is this is what she says. Hybrid cloud is going to bridge the on-premises stuff with the things that normally, traditionally didn't work in the cloud that are now being moved into the cloud. And Jim Whitehurst says that what IBM and Red Hat will do together is they will create the one unifying platform that bridges on-premises and cloud. And when you're going to do this in a large capacity, this is who you go to. And these clients, the number one thing they're afraid of these days, according to IBM CEO, (laughs) vendor lock-in. And so Red Hat must remain independent. Their, quote, go-to market strategy must remain independent, end quote. And that reason is because they want to sell into competitors that IBM is currently competing in similar markets with, and they want Red Hat to still sell to them, and they want to be able to sell to large 
clients, quote unquote, they're afraid about vendor lock-in. So IBM can go, no, this isn't a vendor-specific solution. This is Red Hat. It's totally our solution. You're totally getting locked into us. Go ahead. Deploy Red Hat. It's got Kubernetes. It's got OpenStack. It's going to be fine. It's an interesting question, too, because I think we've seen this from other things, either like larger companies like Alphabet or just different sections of Amazon where you're like, you have, you're selling to one hand and, and you know buying from the other. Like how how does this work? How well does it actually work? And sometimes it seems like business is pragmatic enough that that it's fine. You know, people are like, all right, yeah, install me my OpenShift cluster managed by IBM's managed services, and away I go. Today, October thirtieth, Mark Shuttleworth released a statement on the IBM acquisition of Red Hat, um, and this is great. This is I didn't I didn't expect this. Canonical usually plays it quiet. They just they usually tend to default to not saying anything. Like, they just don't say it. They don't get in the mix. But this time, Mark wasn't uh, standing still. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. Uh, I think you guys will recall uh, almost a year ago, we had a ZDNet article where Mark was taking some shots at Red Hat's open... Oh, yeah. Open, yeah, it was, it was for open system. <laughs> it was good. It was, it was a good read. I love it. Um, this, though, this is even better. Uh, I love this. He writes in here, public sources of data on Linux trends show that we've had a, a clear move. And he's setting up that uh, essentially uh, Red Hat has been losing market shares is his position and that uh, they were pushed into this. He says, we salute Red Hat for the role it played in framing uh, open, so- open sources familiar shrink wrapped replacement for additional Unix on Wintel. In that sense, RHEL was critical in the open source movement. Nevertheless, the world has moved on, and replacing Unix is no longer sufficient. The decline in RHEL growth contrasted with the acceleration in Linux more broadly is a strong market indicator of the next wave of open source. So what he's saying is RHEL market share decreasing, but overall Linux deployments were going up, market indicator. And I think he's right, and that's what's so great about it. Um, And then he goes into containers and whatnot, essentially kind of implying that IBM um, was able to scoop them up because of this situation that Red Hat found. The time of REL is past. Maybe true. Red Hat's uh, explanation is that we just simply couldn't sell into the clients at the scale we wanted to anymore. Like we had reached the end of our sales capacity and to get to the next big fish, we had to get even bigger ourselves. That's their version of the story. Besides the fact that, you know, all the shareholders make buckets. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, fine, that's a legit enough, you know, that's, that's I, who would say no to that? Whew. Well, having having interviewed with their uh, with their consulting uh, department recently, I can I can actually verify their their statements about uh, they they've got customers lining up through the door, and they just don't have the consulting staff to actually uh, do the on site implementations that uh, that they're wanting to do. So there there may be some validity to that. Wall Street seems to think so. <laughs> I mean, up forty five percent. Jeez, that's that isn't that is really something. Um. I don't know. I, I'd be curious to know uh, any any old timers what your thoughts are just in terms of. I mean, this is Red Hat. <laughs> like this is Red Hat we're talking about right here. And for us old timers, this to me it feels it, it, huge. Go beyond market strategies and things like this. Like, is there any besides Microsoft's uh, complacency in, in working with open source? Is there any other major, major, major indicator we've seen of how successful? Free software and open source has become in the industry. $36 billion makes this the largest software acquisition in the history of software acquisitions. It's the largest, in, and it was an open source one. It was a, it was a company making free software. I don't, I don't think we see the same focus. Like, obviously, AWS has built on a lot of free software. 
it's not marketed that way. That's what, what Red Hat was so special about, right? Mm. It was it, it was not, I guess it was not technically an open source company, but it sure felt like it. Well, here's here's what gets me is that we talk about companies that have a smaller impact on the market than Canonical does. Canonical has this weird problem where like their deployments of Ubuntu are like shadow deployments. There literally could be a safe margin more Ubuntu deployments in production workloads in the world than there are RHEL deployments when you consider VPSs and containers and VMs, which the vast majority, not all, but a lot of them are Ubuntu-based. And I have had specific information given to me by AWS engineers who tell me that the majority of the Linux instances on AWS are also Ubuntu. And I've heard the same thing from Microsoft employees about Azure. They don't like to release this information publicly, so you just have to trust me. I'm sorry I can't link to anything, but this is what they've told me, is that they're Ubuntu-based. And yet, we talk about Ubuntu as if it is in another tier from Red Hat, as if it's along the same deployment scale of Fedora or Mint or Elementary OS. But in reality, it has tens of millions more deployments because of the container and VPS craze. Well, I think part of it, too, is like, RHEL beats Red Hat, right? Ubuntu kind of just beats Linux. Like, it's just, a, it's Ubuntu Linux, and you got it because it was an easy to use, it was already there, it might have been the default, but you didn't have to talk to Canonical. You don't even, you might not even know who Canonical is, you just know about Ubuntu. Hmm. Yeah, Unless was, you're buying managed services. I was having a conversation with some of the leadership at Linux Academy uh, talking about uh, beefing up the Ubuntu courseware at Linux Academy, and it's something they're interested in doing, but they have zero student data showing, I shouldn't say zero, but they have less student demand for Ubuntu than they have for Kali Linux right now. And I know that just simply is incongruent with the market share of Ubuntu. And the way we talk about Ubuntu is incongruent with the market share of Ubuntu. And the way the tech industry, we talk more about Fitbit and Netflix than we talk about Canonical. Meanwhile, Canonical's running all of this stuff that these companies are, are using. It's really, it's a bizarre thing. And so the, the other thing that really sort of landed hard on me is, does this mean Canonical is next? Is Microsoft now going, shit, well, Azure is powered by, I mean, like 30, 40% of the rigs on here are Ubuntu-based. Right. Can we afford for one of our competitors to control this? Right. Right. And I wonder if there wasn't a bidding war going on for Red Hat. The way this news came out, the way it came out on a Sunday, it was leaked and then they had to confirm it before they could even tell their own staff. It makes you wonder if there was another company in, in, um, involved in the bidding process for Red Hat. And th this is all my way of saying we have major shifts still ahead of us. Like when you look, there are, there, are, there are certain shifts happening in the industry because now of the success of open source. And this is the result of that success. Right. We can't ignore that. Like for it to be successful means it's, it's used by big companies and they have different different ideas of what they want to do with that technology. It, to me it also underscores like it's still important that we have some non-commercial distributions like things like things like Debian mm. or Arch that like <laughs> maybe I don't run them on my server. I mean I, I have certainly in both cases, but they're they're there and that is a, a thing that keeps I think like keeps the community f focused a little bit or at least like that's our fallback. So uh, uh, Brandon just joined, but uh, I don't know if he's at his mic, and I'm, I'm going to steal his thunder a little bit. Maybe I, I, I want to propose kind of an alternate uh, reality to this to this merger. Uh, we Brandon and I were talking the other day when this happened about an article that was posted about um, maybe IBM bought Red Hat and Red Hat takes over IBM. So instead of instead of this being the corporatizing of of Red Hat, I'm not sure if that's a word, but it is now. Um, 
instead, uh, Jim becomes the new the new CEO of IBM in the next couple of years, and Red Hat's culture overwhelms that of IBM. And now, you know, open source takes over from the inside. <laughs> I, I mean, I like that idea. Uh, Three hundred thousand employees, though it's uh, pretty. It's, it feels like a drop in the ocean. It's one department within a massive entity. I think that in reality, it'll be somewhere in between. Um, I, I'm I'm hoping for a best case scenario that it'll, it'll be like Microsoft and LinkedIn. If you didn't know the business behind it, you wouldn't know that Microsoft owns LinkedIn. Um, and I think that's kind of based on on the articles that I've read. Uh, I think that's kind of what IBM wants to do with Red Hat because they're supposed to be an autonomous right. uh, subsidiary yes. of IBM. That's what they say, you know. But you think about this. I mean. Really, IBM has been around in one form or another since the early 1900s, 1911. Um, they weren't called international business business machines until uh, 1924. But, I mean, we're talking, these guys have been around since the World Wars. And the idea that a division of a company that has been around for nearly 100 years will change the culture is optimistic. It is definitely optimistic. I'm hopeful, though. Um if nothing else, maybe they could use them as a steward. Like IBM trying to navigate a new world and a new technology landscape could defer to Red Hat's expertise in certain areas. Right. I, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Like we kind of assume that the, the IBM culture will, will crush Red Hat, or that's a lot of the fears. But hey, may, maybe it'll go the reverse and, and IBM opens up and some of this, this new blood mm-hmm. distributes. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's a numbers game. And, and that's. Brandon, did you want to jump in there with some thoughts? Yeah, just I, IBM's contributed open source for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they have an open source culture. Yeah. I'm not at, you know, I, I'm a former Red Hatter, so uh, I'm a, I have a different perspective, but I, I don't think it's going to be all the doom and gloom, but that's just my personal opinion. Good. Why, why do you feel it is because IBM has been a good steward to open source in the past or what is it that's making you feel? Uh, it's a, uh, it's been a good steward. And a few people in the chat have mentioned some of the things that they've done. They have a um, a lot of projects uh, between Red Hat and IBM. I think it's uh, uh, they've contributed more to open source than any one period. Uh, so it's uh, uh, it'll be interesting. If not, you know, if if all fails, um, uh, everything Red Hat does is open source. Just go fork it. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> Right, and I, I think that is that is a nice that is a nice safety uh, hatch we have here. Is uh, there's uh, free software, and the original contributors still own the copyrights of them. So that's that's impressive, and that is good to note. I, I hope so. <clears throat> I think I think in some ways it could it could supercharge their sales engine, and that could be really good. And in the meantime, business continues as normal uh, today. Red Hat Enterprise Linux seven point six shipped and. Fedora 29. Now this, I am very excited about. There's a big feature in Fedora 29 that I've been looking forward to trying. And in just one week as we record this episode, it will be 15 years since they announced the release of Fedora Core 1. Wow. Yeah, it's big. That's big. That's a big deal. Uh, And now they have not just like the core Fedora, but they have workstation, they have server, they have atomic host, they have all these different like little spins and stuff that are semi-popular. Of course, they have the cloud version that I use, they have support for ARM devices, and if this wasn't maybe thinking ahead a little bit, they even have a System 390 spin, so (laughs) (laughs) they're good to go. (laughs) Uh, This release, though, I think is... um, 
probably uh, from an end user perspective, uh, the most appealing because it ships GNOME 3.30, which has some performance improvements. Uh, they've got uh, better support for uh, ARM images, including ZRAM on those. Vagrant images uh, for Fedora Scientific. But there's something else in this one that uh, we wanted to talk about. The West got a chance to kick the tires on, and so we kind of took two tracks. I've been I have been managing a Fedora Cloud instance for years now, um, and I've been dutifully updating, 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 updating. And then in the last release, after having zero issues of updating after release after release after release, I decided I wanted to rebuild and build a bigger, stronger Fedora box and use Cockpit to manage it and and move everything I had. I had multiple systems, and I moved everything to one system and then put it in containers on that one system. And I I wanted to experiment with that, and I wanted to use Fedora Cloud to do it. And I ended up using my next cloud instance in production. I attached a, an extra 250 gigs of uh, digital ocean storage to that droplet, put my next cloud folder on there, and that's mounted inside the container. It's all very nice, right? So I sit down. I'm like, okay, self, you're going to take this Fedora 28 system up to Fedora 29. We're going to start this upgrade you got your all over belt again. On, you're, you're at the console. It was. It was good. It was. Uh, so the first thing I did is I logged into Cockpit and uh, just did all the security and system updates. I couldn't do a distribution upgrade in there though, so I had to. Uh, so I, I SSH into the oh, box. Old school. Yeah, and you know the DNF commands are well documented. Like you first you do like this update thing, and then you uh, you install like an upgrade plugin, and then you just you, there's like three commands, and then the final command is. Do a redo and do a DNF reboot, and this is neat because it ties in with System D. Reboots your system, and while it's in the boot up state, clean installs the packages, checks it, and then reboots the system once more, and you boot up with all the fresh stuff. Oh, that is that is nice. So I do that once with Cockpit, so that way I have a 28 update that's totally current, all up to date. Everything's working. Just feels like the best way to do it. Then I SSH in. And I do all that DNF stuff, get the 29 upgrade going, does the same process, it reboots, you know, does the install upgrades at all. So now I have a full 29 install that's up to date. Just like that. Boots up. Feels like it takes forever because when it's doing that systemd upgrade in the background, it's offline. And so you're just sitting there waiting for your box to come back. and Hoping, hoping that it pings again or your SSH connection resumes. I, I have been uh, remotely upgrading servers in one form or another literally since the 90s. And it's still just as anxiety-inducing <laughs> during that moment as it ever has been. It doesn't matter if I have an IPKVM or an HTML5 console that I can use in any browser I want via the Ting dashboard for days. It doesn't matter. I still am anxious during that time when I can't ping the box. I mean, it's just natural, right? Nothing never, else is happening. Yeah. I'm just sitting there staring at the terminal. That's all that's happening. Well, even with the best of intentions, all the snapshots, all the snapshots, yeah. immutable file systems, right. like, things can still break. It's still just, I don't know, man. I just don't know. And of course, you know what? Now I think about it, I didn't do a snapshot beforehand. I think I have backups for that box, but I didn't actually. Oh, you reckless admin. I just you. went for it. I just went for it. Um, you can tell I'm I'm from a day before. I'm, I'm pre-VPS, Wes. Um, anyways, so it boots up finally. And I type in the Nextcloud URL. Hit enter on the old box. Page cannot be found. Oh, no. This is it. After, like, years of doing these upgrades, like, this is the one that broke. This is it. And I'm like, oh. All right, what about my cockpit URL? Because cockpit, by the way, is just great. So I log in. Cockpit's working. I can SSH into the box. Okay, so it's up. I can ping it. Cockpit's fine. I'm digging around. I go to the container section, and I see that my containers are restarting, all of them. 
are just stuck in this restarting loop. And it's it's hitting my CPU because I've got a database container, I've got a Nextcloud container, <clears throat> excuse me, I've got an MB container, and they're all just rebooting constantly, rebooting, rebooting. As fast as the system can reboot a container, these things are cycling. And I'm like, well, okay, what? what? I know I've seen this before. How did I fix this before? And I'm sitting there looking at it, and I look at the, because in, in Cockpit, it puts the console log right there, so you can click on the container, you can actually see the console Ooh, log nice, yeah. in Cockpit. And I see permission denied, permission denied. It's just permission denied scrolling past my screen as fast as it can possibly. I, I know I've seen this after an upgrade before. Think about it for a second. Oh, of course. It was SE Linux. Of course of it's course SE Linux. Of course it's SE Linux. Of course it's SE Linux. Uh, so I had to get that. And that just got reset as part of the upgrade. Right, it's because you'd, uh, you'd enabled a lot of custom stuff, right? You really tuned SE Linux oh, perfectly yeah. for your use case. Oh, yeah. You know me. Not that off button at all. No, not for <laughs> me. I got a question, though. So that's not the thing I was most excited about. That was just my standard test I do with Fedora 9. But the feature that I am the most excited about, we had talked to Matthew Miller about it ages ago. We've been teasing it for a long time. It's finally landing in Fedora 29, and it's modularity. This release is particularly exciting because it is the first to include Fedora modularity, which features a system that allows you to install a version. Boy, this is hard to explain. It allows you to install, say, a version of Node.js that is not in the main package repository of the version of Fedora you're using. So say Fedora 30 ships and you want to use a newer version of Node.js or you need to use the version that was in Fedora 28. You can now mix and match the versions with these modular repositories. You no longer need to upgrade your entire OS just to get the new Node.js. And what I love about this is it's sort of solving the same problem that Snaps and Flatpak solve, but from a different perspective. Snaps and Flatpaks are very de developer-driven. That way, the, the, the creator of the software can directly distribute to the end user. And I think that's perfect for a lot of types of applications, even server-side applications. But package management, that's a sysadmins system. That's software distribution designed by system administrators for system administrators. And there's still valid uses for the package management system to manage server software. And the only real downside has been these version issues you run into when you're on, say, like... RHEL or CentOS or, or something that doesn't update very often, but all of a sudden you need a newer version of a package that isn't in the repo, it starts to fall apart. Right, that's the perfect thing. You're like, oh, I have safety. I know nothing's going to break. And then you're like, oh, wait, no, but I need, I need one more version because there's a bug fix that only affects me. And right now, one of our solutions, flat packs and snaps, if you're doing, dealing with server software, it's really only snaps. And that works great, like for something like, especially for like Plex Media Server, it's a perfect solution. But for like low-level stuff, like your Apache server, or maybe Postgres, or Node.js, do you really need to have that as a snap when you could maybe just have modular repositories that allow you to pull in that newer version on an older version of Fedora? It seems like magic, but it works. Oh, yeah, it does. I mean, we've been playing with it here uh, the past couple of days. The way to think about it is before, you know, a Fedora release comes along and they sort of pick, like, oh, okay, here's the here's the version of Node that we're going to ship with this. And there would be a different one for 28 versus 29. Now, they're just taking whatever version of lists of nodes that they're going to support and building them for all the Fedora versions. So, it doesn't matter which one. You can pick and match your version of Node and your version of Fedora support totally independently. So, this isn't some crazy container system they're doing. Right. And you're not running multiple of those. What you get to do is there's You get this, one Node.js. You pick your version, but you get one Node.js. Yes. And, and DNF now has this, this module system that you can tie in, and there's commands for it, and you can see, and you basically choose, like, 
all right, well, I know that my app is targeted at the older Node 8, so I'm going to make sure that that module is what I pick. And then when you go and use DNF to install Node, it knows which dependencies and which systems it actually needs to use. And then it just gets updated as part of your DNF upgrade process. It's just one of the many packages That's installed. the nice part, is that you can get some, some newer software, but it's still tied in with the distribution. And... This is as much of a DNF change as it is the uh, repo change. Like, they had to make changes in how they uh, keep track of versions, how they build them for the different versions yeah, of Fedora. Yeah, a lot like, of build system It's changes. like a multi-component change that they've made to enable this modularity. That's also an impressive, like, project-wide effort. Um, and you got to imagine by, like, the time 30 lands, this is going to really be dialed in. That's some of the things I like about this is obviously, as you say, there's you know there are a ton of third-party options for getting software, even just building it yourself if you have to. But distributions do a lot of hard work. Fedora does a lot of hard work getting getting the stuff packaged, having having updates for the software that needs to be there, security updates, whatever else that you have in mind. With a system like this, you still get all those things. You can just get newer versions, or as you say, older versions. I'll say the the story now, if, as they call it, of how you get software on Fedora is getting a little complex. So you've got. <laughs> DNF in the repositories, you've got flat packs, you've got copper, and you've got modular Fedora repositories, and I think I'm actually missing... I mean, there's things like RPM Fusion, which just, it just plugs in, but it's a separate project. Mm, it's true, there is that too, yeah. So there's a lot of ways to get software. Uh, when we were trying out Fedora, I, I said... I. I'll tell you what I feel like, because I feel like Fedora is really great if you're just doing, you know, get down, start working, you're doing a terminal, doing a web browser, it's so great for that. But, like, what if you need it as your daily driver, Wes? Can you get Slack and Telegram and these things on there? How did that go for you? How did it, try, how did it go trying to get these Electron apps or these proprietary applications? With FlatHub, honestly, it was pretty good. Now, it went... I'd say 85% of the way to being pretty seamless where I could just go to the website, follow the inst installation instructions, and then like, click through on the flathub.org website and install stuff. That didn't quite work with GNOME software, mm -mm. but all of the command line versions no. of those same stuff GNOME did software work just, just fine. It kicks an air up. Yeah, so that was a little cryptic. I didn't find an easy solution within the like first two Google results. I didn't try any harder than that. I'm sure it's easy <laughs> to fix, but I just wanted to play with it. Yeah. Uh, but I wasn't sure. So that's interesting that you ran into that because I wasn't sure if I was doing so. So this is a if, if this is an actual bug, I might try to reproduce the process and file a bug for this because I thought maybe I was, when I ran into it, I thought I was just being dumb. Yeah, we'll have to play with that a little more because it was almost really slick. Yeah. I should stress, too, that, like, just running on the command line and installing, like, the name of the Flatpak works totally fine. Slack, Dropbox, Telegram, once they're you all there. Add, once you add the Flathub repo, yes. you have to do that first. That part was easy. That was easy. That was, like, you just go to Flathub. They have a thing you can click, and just, if you're on Fedora already, it's all integrated so that, you know, it, it calls up all the right applications. It launches GNOME software and installs correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and then you're you're able to get Telegram and Slack and all of the, you know, proprietary goodies that you use to communicate during the day. And it works on the Fedora desktop. Any other kind of impressions you had when using it? Any other takeaways? Like there's that installer. That was kind of I mean, I'm just not a fan of Anaconda. Uh, I will say that their newer, what is that, Bevit or something? Uh, their new, the new version of their disk manager in the installer. That's actually gotten better. I, I like it a lot. I hate the original version. The new version is pretty easy. It's going to work. And I will say that like once we got it all set up on our JB test machine, it boots really fast. Like yeah. once it all once it's all installed, it's really nice. Yeah, it's probably one of the fastest booting Linux distros out there right now. I mean, so we've recently tried Ubuntu eighteen ten, we uh, eighteen oh four. Obviously, I'm very familiar with um, elementary OS. We've recently booted on there. Uh, I guess it, it's it's about as fast as um, Haiku was, 
right? Yeah, you're right. It's about as fast. <laughs> which is really which fast. Which was pretty, pretty darn fast. Yeah, and then, it, it uh, t- so the test machine uh, is Intel-based. And so uh, it took both, both Wes and I, it took us until there was a bit of a glitch. Uh, you saw it in Firefox. Oh, yeah. But it took us a little bit before we realized uh, our test machine was on Wayland. Totally on Wayland, yeah. We, we, we got, got, got a far way into the workday before we realized that. Which, and it was a small glitch. It went away in, in seconds, and the rest of it was, was pretty darn smooth. Yeah. Yeah, There's, I will say too the uh, the setup like when you you know you've got everything installed and then you boot up into Fedora mm-hmm. and then it has you like set up your first account. Yeah, that that welcome wizard thing. Pretty smooth. Like it just does that and then it reloads the GNOME session and logs you into your new account that you've just made. I'm surprised more impressed. distros don't use that. Yeah, but uh, a lot of them just get it done during the installation process. Which Fedora, some of those questions that they ask post installation, they they've removed from the Anaconda. There's obviously store. upsides to to both, but I was I was glad that it worked and uh, you know it didn't it didn't crash crash Wayland. Yeah, that's true. It didn't crash. Oh, that's a good point. Huh. In fact, I'd have to use it harder. I bet you I could get it to crash. You know, I'm pretty good at getting no shell to crash. Are, I get it to crash. You have usually. a gift. I do have a gift <laughs> for it. Yeah, so this modularity, I think, long-term is the bigger deal because you look at Fedora, it's got um, essentially like a 13-month support cycle per release. And that sort of means you're going to need to update. If you were going to actually deploy this in a production server environment, about every 13 months, probably just about right there on the nose, you're going to need to go log into your servers and upgrade them. And one of the reasons I've been doing this experiment with this droplet now for ages is because I wanted to know how far I could push it. Is that really possible? I have now experienced more than five or six. I lost track at so many flawless upgrades. It just keeps working. Without issue. Part of it, it helps that the applications are containerized, so they're isolated from the system, and I have to keep those containers updated too. But it it has made the risk surface of the upgrade a lot smaller. And so I have a very small core Fedora install that can just be pretty standard. Right? Yeah. yeah. And when you combine this software repository modularity, it means that when 30 comes around and I'm rather compelled to upgrade, if something I need to do my job still depends on 29's version of something, modularity will allow me to upgrade to Fedora 30 but still run that software dependent on Fedora 29. If, when you combine it with RHEL, too, it seems like a really good story because, like, let's say you're, you know, you're developing on Fedora and a new one comes out and you're not ready to update Node because your whole production stack's based on this one version. Well, you can keep it. And then RHEL's released, and of course it's going to have an older version, but if both of them have the modularity set up, well, it doesn't matter. You just pick and choose and match them. Right. This modularity is clearly going to be way more important when it hits Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And that's in light of this acquisition. You know, you have this, this is the first release since we know about IBM wanting to buy Red Hat. And here's the Fedora project. And the thing that we are probably collectively the most worried about is what the hell is going to happen to Fedora long term? Because they're becoming a hybrid cloud company. And I don't really know what hybrid cloud is. I know what the cloud is. I know what hybrids are. Those are cars. So I don't know what a hybrid cloud is, but whatever Red Hat's going to do to be the dominant platform of a hybrid cloud probably doesn't include a lot of Fedora on the desktop. Yes, right? Like, obviously, there's lots of stuff that isn't just desktop-specific that gets put in and tested in Fedora, but we don't talk very much or hear very much about the Fedora server story. So maybe even internally, maybe there's there's ways that they they test all of that, but... 13 months, you don't, you're not going to run your, your five-year production application on it. It's a, it's a weird future. And, and that's just really the beginning of it. I mean, Gnome Shell is primarily a Red Hat project. Um, 
are a lot big in a big way. GTK, GTK, um, and so using Fedora now in light of that, you sit here and you you, you realize. This is an important project. This is a pretty important project. And I, I don't want anything happening to Fedora. I want it to stick around. I want to see 30 ship because when 30 lands, there's some, I think we're going to see more project Stratus or Stratus storage, I think it's yeah. called now, land in 30. I think we're going to see a more complete version of Pipewire Ooh. land Ooh. in Fedora 30. Plus you're going to see another uh, go at this modularity stuff in Fedora 30. And aren't they also saying that that's when like Silver Blue is going to be... Uh, there, there's hopes there that Silver Blue will be pretty prominent. Maybe even the preferred workstation choice by Fedora 30. I don't know if they'll get there, but lots of neat stuff there with OS tree and immutable system packages. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, if you're a Fedora user, this is just another easy slam dunk. There's really... And, and with FlatHub and Flatpaks now, and containers for server-side applications, the risks for upgrading between Fedora releases are getting really low. you, you got to figure, if you kept that installation around for a while, when Fedora 30 came out, those flat packs are still going to work. just fine. And I mean, and they've done some things, you know, like it's easy to get H.264. They've even got like the right in GNOME software. You can enable the repo for Google Chrome. So like... Really? Yeah, I was I impressed with I that. I didn't do that. So between that, like I'm a Git Chrome... Firefox. And that's totally fine too. Like you got a browser, huh. you've got a great desktop and a, and a good shell and all of that. And then you've got all the flat packs for your your proprietary Electron apps. Yeah. That's it. That's what I need. I mean, that's that's my like production machine for just, you know, day-to-day use. Yeah, and... um. DNF, every time I use that tool, I'm like, damn, this is great. It's come a long way from the days of Yum. It's like, a it's a package manager if you were going to make a package manager, a more mod, like if today you were going to start over and build a package manager, DNF is probably what you come up there's with. There's still some things, like there are times where it's weirdly slow or some of the op- <laughs> things don't feel very optimized. But you're right, like the principles behind mm-hmm. it, the, the concepts, the abstractions there, they're really solid. Yeah, so you can get it at gitfedora.org and... Um, Grab a go, go grab an image. They they don't have the upgrade posts out yet, but they almost always uh, have those. Out. Oh uh, nope, still still the old ones. But actually, the commands still work. I think you just have to change <laughs> the release from twenty eight to twenty nine. Just don't blame Chris when your no. machine doesn't boot up. Yeah. So if this modularity thing sounds confusing and uh, odd to you, um, trust trust me, it, it is. And uh, we have a link in the show notes where you can read more about it at uh, linuxunplugcom slash. 273. And they have a diagram up there on how modularity kind of works. It really just comes down, it really comes down to just making all the different components work, making the repository descriptions work correctly, making DNF understand what DNF understand what you're asking for, all of that. And then the applications being linked to the right libraries. I think it's a pretty cool system. I know they've been working on it for a long time. I'm surprised it took so long. I mean, this feels like something we should have had ages ago. Yeah. Well, I had an opportunity um, last week, was it? that uh, we did our Pipewire episode. Oh, yeah. When that episode came out, I was down in uh, Santa Clara at the Intel campus at Meet BSD. Look at you. So they have uh, they have these, uh, boy, these BSD guys, they have a lot of conferences. But Meet BSD is only like twice a year in California, like the, 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 the one down here in the States. Oh, that, that's, or once every two years, I'm sorry. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, okay. No, yeah, the other way around. They have plenty of other ones going on all the freaking time. But this one, Put the, the one that's put on by IX Systems is once every two years. And so I went to the last one, and that was at the Berkeley campus. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. And so I got a chance to go to this one. And I didn't I didn't know what to expect exactly because not only was this uh, post-Linux Academy acquisition, so I wasn't sure if that would be awkward or not. Yeah, right. But also at the time, it was when Linus was getting a whole bunch of 
you know, well, just all the attention for getting, and he was taking his break. Like, I just wasn't sure what to expect. And it must be interesting, too. I mean, you're coming into to a community, obviously, you know and like that the BSD is, but it's not something you use in your day-to-day yeah. life. Yeah, and I know some of the people there. And the other thing is, too, it's, it's, it's like... Um, it's like going to learn something about something that you kind of are tangentially familiar with, but not like crazy familiar with. So it's not like the kind of event I would normally go to, but I always find it to be worth the time. So I knew when the when I had the opportunity to go to this next one, I knew I was going to go. There's just no question. But I thought what I would do because I have I have such a bad memory, especially when it's a week later. I I, I took an audio recorder with me to capture some of my thoughts there at the conference, and I, I wanted to kind of recreate some of the conference experience for you. So this was me arriving at the Intel campus, which, holy crap, the Intel campus is multiple blocks with multiple sky bridges and uh, <laughs> multiple parking That's lots. That's what matters, the sky bridge count. <laughs> the, when, when it's more than one sky bridge, <laughs> it does matter. Like, this is a big place. So, like, the first 15 minutes of me getting to meet BSD were figuring out how to get from the parking lot to where I was allowed wow. to go. But it, it was fascinating to be at their home office. So this is day one of Meet BSD California 2018. I've said my highs to, uh, hey, Alan, there's Alan. Hi, people. There's Alan. Said my highs to Alan. And uh, we're getting seated. They're showing a montage of uh, BSD people. I don't, I don't recognize any of them. I just keep waiting to see Alan up there. And you know, what, you know what else I found? It's mostly just them eating food. Just mostly them eating food. But we're getting ready. I think it's going to be a, a good day because we're here at the, in, we're at the Intel campus in one of their convention rooms, I guess. What, hey, what do you call this room? Gorgeous. Yeah, it's a big room. And uh, they got a big screen, they got lights, they got professional audio, and uh, they're yeah, getting everybody settled for what is clearly going to be a great day. And I got an Intel badge for the day. They gave everybody an Intel badge so you can get to certain areas of the building and steal all their secrets. Hey, there's a picture of Alan. Lots of pictures of Alan. He's a bit of a celebrity around there. Um, so the first talk was good. It was a really good talk. It was, it was more of a fundamentals talk get us going in the morning. Producer Q5SYS did a great Q&A in the morning, got everybody talking. Nice. It's a, it's a, it's a crowd of like 80, 90 that first day. So it was, it was big enough that you felt like you're in an event, but small enough that we could pass the microphone around the whole room and everybody did introductions. Oh, really? Everybody oh. talked about what project they work on. That is kind of intimate. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and lots of joking about Linux because like a lot of people <laughs> were there because they're passionate about BSD, but they make their day money programming or developing on Linux. A lot of device driver guys there. Network really? performance was a big focus for a lot of them. Uh, I, I have a blog post up where I go into some of the details of the companies that were there, uh, linuxunplugged.com, if you click on the blog link at the top. E- uh, somebody from eBay was there, uh, Juniper Networks, uh, Cisco, um, Groupon, um, obviously Intel, just lots of companies there were that are interested in that low-level stuff. And so it was fascinating to hear what they're working on as they pass the mic around. But the second talk, I think, was really symbolic because it was from an individual in Intel's open source group who has been a graphics driver, a low-level graphics driver developer for Linux for years. Like, we owe this guy a lot of thanks for for enabling tons and tons of low-level graphics capabilities in Linux, not just on Intel hardware, but on Intel in general. He now works on enabling general BSD technologies. I don't know what that means. But there was a clear tone to his talk. He had gotten that presentation at this event for 80 or 90 people 
super scrutinized by the intel legal and brass in a way that his talks never get scrutinized because there was an area in there that they felt very delicate about. This is in my opinion. And that's the area where he apologizes for how bad Intel screwed the BSD community with Meltdown and Spectre. And that, I mean, that's got to be, right? That has to be on everyone's blog. And in there, he and I have a, I have a picture in the blog, and uh, I have the quote. Uh, in there, they adopt a security-first pledge that he makes. Uh, and you can see that in the blog post. But I, here's my thoughts after that talk. It's lunchtime, my favorite time of day one at Meet BSD 2018. I just wanted to share some initial impressions of the Intel campus because that's one of the coolest things about going to this event is getting access to the Intel campus with our security badges and our whatnots. But it is only a small area. We're confined to a specific area of the Intel campus. But even there, you can still glean like a few things about their corporate culture. Of course, you get to see how they do security. And you get to meet some engineers. In fact, I've already met a couple of Intel engineers who are big Linux fans. And a couple of them are BSD fans too, but don't tell the meet BSD coordinators that. <clears throat> they wouldn't want to know. And it's, it's unlike going to an event center that is designed to hold these events. You are seeing a corporate building be adapted for an event. So we're using their corporate auditorium that they must give big product presentations and Apple-style events to their own employees in this room that we're sitting in there talking about BSD now. And they've had to give us access to their network so we can get on the Wi-Fi. There's facilities that has to come in there to provide food, like catering. And Intel has to facilitate all of that. And I've gotten the impression that it started a little broader. They were a little more concerned. They wanted everyone to have an escort when they left the room. They didn't want to provide internet access. Uh, they wanted to have reviews of what was going to be discussed. And over time, as they worked with the MeetBSD coordinators, Intel loosened up. They kind of became a little more hip to what was going on, the idea of it, and the unconference fact of it. And now we just have, f like, full run of this area of the Intel campus. So day one has been really about everybody kind of getting to know each other. One of the first talks out of the gate was Chris Moore, and he talked about people building future BSD projects off of a TrueOS build system that they're creating. Don't call it a distributions, but that did sneak in there once. The word BSD distribution snuck in there once. The second talk was from an Intel employee who, in part, wanted to apologize for the fiasco of Meltdown Inspector to the BSD community, but also was talking about some of the current things they're struggling with and trying to fix, things they were able to solve in Linux that they're now trying to solve in BSD. And that was a lot more interesting than I expected, to hear an Intel insider talk about the things they're working on day to day for open source that just generally doesn't get the day of light. Now it's uh, NetBSD after lunch, and then the one I'm looking forward to, a ZFS discussion panel. Yeah, I mean when that you, sounds great. When you've got when you've got the uh, the room full of folks that you do, you got to talk about ZFS, and um, they did. And <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, like the ZFS the ZFS panel now. They've done this before, and uh, they don't they don't bother going up there and having a talk anymore because they really just have it down to a Q and A because that's everybody just has all of these questions. How do I solve this problem? It's a room full of people trying to solve storage problems, and the thing about the BSD community is they don't have this debate about what file system to use. There's only one file system. Well, I mean, there's two. Yeah, right? yes, there's UFS. Yes, and... yes, yes. yes. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, but well, you know which one they're for, right? You know what you're doing, where you use it. Yeah, uh, the original developer of UFS gives it uh, gives a talk that I cover here in a second. But uh, so the CFS panel, they go up there. Alan Jude, um, of course, up there. Dan Langill up hey, there as dear well. Friend Dan. Yeah, it was great. It was really good to. I got to hang out with Benedict, Alan, and Dan. That's a, that, that's a that sounds was, like a fun trip. It, it was a lot of fun. So here was my reactions after uh, getting to hear a little Alan Jude ZFS talk. It's the end of day here at Meet BSD for at least the first day, and the conference had a pretty strict schedule, but a very relaxed feel. I mean, every 45 minutes or so, something's happening for the most part. There's a few areas here and there where the conversation got pretty in-depth and things maybe ran a little long. It's a very enthusiastic crowd. Everybody here is very passionate about this particular technology area. And they just wrapped up the ZFS panel, which got a bunch of questions from the audience the entire time. The panel did nothing but take questions from the audience. And now that we're all done with day one, it's time to go have a pizza social. The BSD people are serious about their food, just about as serious as I am. Where they had this pizza social, they had IT vending machines. Did I show you a picture of these? Oh, yeah, that is neat. Touchscreens that run the whole length of the vending machine, and it's got a companion storage box next to it that's also the size of a vending machine. And inside it is uh, Lenovo ThinkPad batteries, MacBook dongles, headsets with microphones, like your average everyday— HDMI uh, adapter. Yeah, a mouse, you know, that kind of stuff that you just IT accessories. Yep. And you— "Quote unquote," purchase it with your company badge. So you you run your Intel badge, and then out comes a mouse. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. Uh, so that pizza social was pretty fun because I just got to chat with everybody, and and I left early because I've I've done enough of these events. Uh, and if it's not like if it's not my core crew, like sometimes I'll go out and I'll party late. But if it's not my core crew, I'm like, well, it was great seeing you guys. You guys have a great night. I'm going to bed, and I go to bed like at nine o'clock, and I get great sleep, and I don't get sick. You see, the other folks though they they didn't really they didn't really follow that, and I got there early, and I thought I was in bad shape, but like the whole crew was hungover. <laughs> Good morning. It's day two at Meet BSD in Santa Clara, California. Today is October twentieth, two thousand eighteen, and the BSD folk are trickling in. You feed them, and they show up. Some of them were out quite late last night, one a.m. or so, being very geeky. I, on the other hand. Being the seasoned fest goer that I am, was in bed by 10 o'clock. You see, I, I got these uh, systems I keep in place. Keep hydrated, wash the hands, and go to bed by 10 o'clock. And then you don't get, you don't get any concrud. But here, for these people, it's a rare opportunity to actually get together and talk in person. They do all of their communication primarily over IRC and email. So to actually get here in person and chat is a nice opportunity. So a lot of them show up an hour before the thing even starts. So think about that. They've been up till 1 a.m. And then they show up at the Intel campus at 8 a.m. First talk doesn't even start till 9 a.m. But they get a chance to catch up with someone else, to chat with somebody else. And some of them are just pretty hardcore. Plus the free pastries, coffee, juice, and fruit doesn't hurt either. Today they have a very special guest joining us. We'll get to hear from him. And uh, it'll be a nice, steady pace. But I'm looking forward to getting a few more opportunities to have a few conversations with people. Now, this special guest was sort of teased. Like, we weren't sure if he's going to make it. He might make it. And I, I asked Denise, who was organizing the event, how, how do you not know if you're 
star speaker is going to make it or not. Like that's sort of <laughs> that's rough. She's like, trust me, I know. <laughs> it's very, very we'll rough. Just, we'll just vamp. It'll be fine. But uh, they had been kind of teasing this might happen, but they didn't put it on the official schedule because they weren't sure. But uh, in the BSD land, you have your your royalty. There are people in BSD that are that are real royalty that the group has a reverence for. Um, if they if they speak, everybody stops talking to listen. When they enter a room, all the heads turn. There's real respect, and they're not they're not snooty. They're really down to earth, and they're nice. In fact, if you weren't part of the BSD community at first and not maybe paying attention to the social cues, you wouldn't know they were anybody special. But because they you know they're just. Another person hanging out with the with, hanging out with the BSD people. But when you know what to look for, you can tell how how respected these individuals are. And maybe one of the most respected is the creator of that file system, UFS. And uh, he was able to make it. He walks up on stage, and the moment he's up there, he has all eyes. Nobody's looking at their laptops. Everybody's paying attention. Silence. Even though he's probably told the story they've all heard a hundred times before. Everybody's paying attention because I don't know. It's sort of, it's sort of like when you're that family member that you love the stories the family member tells. He goes up there, he tells one of his famous stories. Well, that was a great history talk by Dr. Kirk McCusick. The room really seemed to enjoy that, and that was pretty neat because they weren't sure if Kirk was going to be able to make that talk because of jury duty. And at the last minute, he was able to make it, so they popped out some lightning talk rounds. They had a batch of lightning talk rounds and popped in Dr. McCusick in there. He went a little long, though. I don't think anybody's going to mind. Yeah, they follow the schedule pretty closely until Dr. McCusick's up on stage, and then he can take as long as he likes. There was was sort of a different tone to the second day, and I go into this a little bit more in the blog post, but in the second day, it was a smaller crowd. I thought Saturday would be bigger, but the second day was a smaller crowd. That is weird, right? You think more people would go on a weekend. But everybody, so you'd had that first day where everybody had done introductions and sort of broken the ice. Then everybody hung out until like 1 a.m., getting drunk and having a good time. And so the second day had a really casual, friendly vibe. Just like that, day two of being inside Intel comes to a close. They're doing the breakout sessions right now, and then they're going to wrap things up. The end of the day actually is the beginning of the party for FreeBSD's 25th birthday. So that's what we do next. Day two, though, is is the one to go to. If you could only make it to one day, it's almost day two. Because by day two, everyone's guards down a little bit. Everybody's cracking jokes. It's more friendly. It's it's more laid back. It's more natural. It's a It's a great, fun scene. It's like hanging out with friends day two. Day one is great, but everybody's still kind of getting to know each other and letting their guard down. It takes that dinner, that hanging out, and that next day where things have thinned down and it's just a little bit smaller of a crowd. All those things add up to everybody being a little more relaxed, and it makes it a really fun environment. It's been pretty cool to hang out inside Intel. They've limited where we could go, but where we've been able to go has been very nice, and they've been very gracious. You combine that with the constant supply of fruits and snacks and coffee... It's just been a really good educational event. And now I'm going to go eat a whole bunch of pizza in the name of FreeBSD's birthday. They had a cake. They had actually it ended up being a taco bar. Um, that was the other thing. I, I was there uh, with listener Ryan and uh, friend Ryan, really. And he, um, 
he and I are uh, Linux admins, or I used to be, and he is currently. And so we kind of shared like a common bond over like processing this BSD information because we both have like a Linux sysadmin background. Totally. And uh, he's working on tons of systems. He's got a whole bunch of BSD systems he's responsible for too. So he's coming at it from two different angles. So it's a, I asked him afterwards, I said, so what do you think? Is this a, was this valuable? He's like, Every talk, I learned something. Every single talk. And because it's not huge, you didn't have to go to multiple rooms. You stayed in the auditorium the entire time. And you weren't scrambling around trying to figure out which thing you were going to listen to. Or. Yeah, you just basically had the hallway track or you had the auditorium. And the hallway track was constantly, Intel provided like this area where you could hang out and chat. Oh, nice. So there, and there was, there was always like, you It was know, easy to do. You weren't in the way. It was yeah, just a, it's, a space it's just for a, that. Yep, exactly. Or you could go sit in the main auditorium and catch a talk. And so you, you always were able to uh, catch all the talks, or if there was one that just didn't really appeal to you, you, you know, you could take a break. Yeah. It was really nicely done. A, a lot of the Linux events that we go to now are so big that there's there's multiple tracks happening at the same time, and and you get there, and this is I think a, a common problem that newcomers to conferences have is you get completely overwhelmed because you can't you can't attend at all, and there will often be multiple talks going on that you're interested at the same time. And it's really overwhelming. Whereas with MeetBSD, it's all in one room because of the size and the scale of the event. And it was a good size for me. I really enjoyed it. It seems like from what, Learned you, lot too. From what you've said, like there's the there's a bit more of a um, cohesiveness or a, I don't know, at Linux events, there's obviously like lots of people there with the same mindset. They're almost always wonderful, right? You, like like-minded people, people interested in the same stuff that you nerd out about. But you're interested in maybe different things. Like maybe you care about Linux or you just care about open source desktops and Linux is an implementation deal. Or you, you really love GIMP and you don't care at all mm-hmm. about containers, right? <laughs> Was there anything different in this in that like if you go here, you probably – you use a BSD stack, right? You, you use OpenBSD on your on your firewall. You use FreeBSD for, for a whole bunch of your desktops that like – was it different? Uh, you know, there is a cohesiveness and um, a um, – singularness of thought that we don't have in Linux, for sure. More so than we have in Linux. But at the same time, more than I've ever seen, I saw a lot of fragmentation. I was really surprised. So behind the scenes, and I think one of the things that I learned in this event that the BSDs are really going to struggle with with is modernization. A lot of people like to use BSD because it's how things have been done for a long time, which means when you need to modernize, people don't like it. Before the general Meet BSD people attended, there was a developer summit. And in there, they were trying, some of the developers were trying to make a case to the other developers that we need to move to Git off of SVN. And that wasn't going over, I mean, the the sell is, well, okay, well, we'll build a bridge so you can keep doing SVN and on the back end, we'll have that going up to Git. So there's a resistance to change, which could be challenging for them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's both like many things. That's a positive and and negative, right? Yeah. It means that it's more carefully crafted. But it means you have certain developers who are like, come on, man, we need to start doing this in a better way, in a newer way. And then you have other people like, this has worked fine for 20, 30 years. We don't need to change this. Yeah. And that's a hard argument that they get stuck at, I think. But they're managing it, and they're trying to walk that line while still being respectful to the old way of doing things. So they're trying to walk the line. The other thing is I was really surprised. Like, uh, they asked how many people in the room are using Trident, you know, the new yeah. desktop. Like, only the developers of Trident were using it. <laughs> Interesting. Um, a lot of them were just using the command line. for, for Like, there's a, there's a lot of differences in how they use it. But uh, I'd say they have more in common than uh, the average group of Linux users does. That was my that was my over. I was surprised where they differed, and I realized, damn, that could be a drag on the project in right. some cases. But I felt like they differed in less places. I overall. mean, yeah, it, that's it's impressive. The BSDs. I mean, obviously, there's there's separate communities and there's separate BSD projects when we say the BSDs. But in general, it seems like they just have a they've 
they've grown a really good community that that's supportive and interesting, and they all do a good job of just making cool shit. Professional. I felt like it was mm-hmm. a professional event. It was well run. IX Systems does a great job. And it was really gracious of Intel to host it there. So anyways, that's my take on MeetBSD. It was totally worth going even as a Linux user. I would go again to the next one. Um, I agree. I don't think every talk I learned something, but absolutely every day I learned several things that I thought were valuable. Is there anything you think uh, Linux conferences or conventions could learn from the way MeetBSD happened? Hmm. It's really hard to say because one of the things that made it so great was the size. wasn't so big. And uh, that's really hard to deal with because we just have a lot of people that come to these events. Yeah, right. But uh, that's something worth – I think it's – I do think it's something worth thinking about. And I think it's something that organizers of Linux events should consider doing is attending some of these BSD events yeah. because it feels like it's you're not overworked, but you're getting stuff done. You're learning stuff. It's worth your time, but it's not – like you don't feel like you're at work. Yeah, and you can feel like maybe you don't have to. You don't have so much FOMO. You can you feel like you understood yes. the whole conference. Yeah, yeah. I want to do a follow up to uh, last week's episode where we finally got that review of the Dell Precision fifty five thirty. That monster of a system. It looks like a bigger version of the XPS thirteen. But uh, I wanted to follow up and say we've posted a companion blog post of the review, so that way you can see what it actually looks like because uh, it is a beautiful machine. And uh, I posted some additional thoughts about the review and links to the benchmarks that I mentioned in that review. So if you go to linuxunplugged.com, look for the blog link at the top of the site, and then you'll find the post for both MeetBSD and the Dell machine. It's a good-looking machine. So it's it like we really had, to, had to show some pictures of but it. But be honest, the real reason was just to show off that cute picture of Dylan. <laughs> I did debate putting that picture in, but I thought it was good scale. You know, here's what it looks like uh, with the kid in there. Uh, it's a good-looking It's a good looking laptop, and he's a good-looking kid, so you put them both in there. I mean, I like, the thing I liked about that, too, is it, it, it's the perfect example of, like, you might not bring it with you to the beach every time, mm. but if you need to, you Good. definitely can. Yeah, I actually this is this sounds makes me sound like a hipster, but I actually walked like a mile to a to a coffee shop carrying that laptop. And I thought, you know what? If I can carry this laptop a mile, uh, that means it's light enough. And so my rev- my my review of the weight that I put in the blog there was uh, it's heavy enough that you notice it's in your bag but light enough that you can carry it a mile to the coffee shop. <laughs> so, you know, good enough, right? It's good enough. Anyways, I, I don't know if we're going to keep doing this blog stuff. So I did one for Meet BSD and did one for this Dell Precision 5530. I'd like to know your thoughts. Tweet me at Chris LES or go to the contact page. Is it useful? When we, I think for like the hardware, it would be to see a picture of what we're talking about. Um, and then you can check it back later on. Like if you get closer to time to make a, like a purchase, you could always come back and check this. Um, but at the same time, it means I'm out there taking pictures, we're writing up blogs and stuff. It's a fair investment in time. Not negligible, but yeah. if people are going to look at it, if this would be a helpful addendum or extra reference for the show, yeah. it'd be interesting to do. We're exploring other ways of just sort of, uh, you know, increasing our coverage and the ways we do that. And this is one way we could do it, but, you know, there's lots of ways we can make that happen. And, uh, boy... Speaking of expanding coverage, uh, Crazy Noah is blowing out the doors. Crazy Noah is right. <laughs> it's just, I, when I saw this, I We thought, cannot keep up with that my guy. My God, man. My God. So, Ask Noah is near 100 freaking episodes now. And um, it's it's massive because not only is he doing like a daily show push uh, to get to episode 100. So, he's doing like episodes on like nearly every day this week, next week. But on, for episode 100, he's going to have a party that uh, looks awesome. It's at the uh, tar- uh, Tamarack, I think it is, Tamarack Tap Room. And 
Man, does that look good. And uh, I think Noah's going to be buying, too. So Ask Noah 100 is coming up. He's got a lot planned for it, so we wanted to give him a shout. So if I show up, I can ask him Linux questions, and he'll give me beer? That's how that works? I wonder. I mean, it's so it's going to be, I think think the party's going to be November 7th. And I'll have a link to uh, the tap room in the show notes if uh, you want to check it out. It is in Minnesota, so just keep that in mind. I tell you what, though, um, if I could make it, I would so. I called him up. I'm like, Noah, Noah, when's your party? Can I make it? (laughs) He's like, it's on the 7th. I'm like, damn it, Noah. I'm going to be traveling on that day. So I can't make it, but it looks really great. And 100 episodes. That is not an easy thing to do. Mm -mm. That is a lot of content. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of it, I mean... Yeah, he's going to be doing, with these daily, daily episodes, he's going to be doing, like, uh, format experiments to see what people like. Try switching up the format of the Ask Noah program and see what sticks. So he's going to be looking for feedback and stuff. So if you've listened to the show before, maybe it didn't click for you, now's an opportunity to listen while he's doing this and let him know what did click. Yeah, exactly. And he'll do more of it. He's pretty keen on that. Because so. that's the hardest thing, I think, right? Like, from our side is there's a lot of ways to present some of this stuff, and not everyone likes all of it, so your feedback goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, just a couple of quick links before we get out of here. A uh, couple of workarounds. If you're still using Dropbox out there and you don't have Extended 4, there is now DBXFS. You can mount Dropbox folders locally as a virtual file system on XFS. There's one. It's using Fuse, as you probably guessed. And then I'll link to another. I knew, I love the internet. I knew this would happen. I knew this. I said, one, well, the first thing I said, you know, you could just make a loopback. Just make a loopback. Put that right, put a loopback image, make a loopback, and put that right there on your XFS. And uh, make that ex- extended four, and you're good to go. That's why I said that, right? Remember you, I said, you said exactly yes. that. Make a loopback. Loopback. Well, it, it is easy to do, but I just didn't really get around to doing it yet. So, um, Ange P wrote up a rough how to on Reddit to do this loopback thing and then mount it and make it your Dropbox folder, et cetera. So, I'll link to that in there too if that's something you want to do. But you know, I'm just saying. I'm just saying this could be, uh, with the effort you put into that, that could be like half the effort it would take to move to Nextcloud. I'm just saying. Yeah, and I think one of the problems um, is there's a lot of things going on in Dropbox. It can be hard to emulate like DBA XFS. There's just a lot of things you have to, there's a lot of things you give up because there's, yeah. all, there's you know, they have all that magic with, with the file system. So <sighs> you, a lot of these either require connectivity or you're going to have to do manual syncing. Let's just go the FOSS way. Yeah, you know, and the the thing is, is Nextcloud has been really so. This blog post I did for Meet PSD, I use Nextcloud to uh, so I'm taking the pictures on the phone. Yep, and then I'm writing the blog post on the laptop. Well, how do you think I'm getting the pictures from the phone to retext, which is what I'm writing up the blog post in? I think you're you're sending them to yourself one by one on Telegram. <laughs> no. That'd be crazy. I'm using Nextcloud. So I take the pictures. They sync up to Nextcloud. I've got a specific MeetBSD folder I created beforehand to have them sync to. Oh, nice. And I am, so what I'm doing is I take the picture, I go to the ones I like in the photo album. I share those to the Nextcloud app, which is set already to go to the MeetBSD folder. I upload them, sit down at the old laptop. They're already there right there on the file system. Bada bing, bada boom. I'm you working. You slot them in, upload them up, yeah. then done. So it's it's a it's a nice system. I miss Dropbox still in a few ways, but it is working for me. And uh, my Fedora upgrade didn't break it. So all in all, I'm calling it a win. Calling it a calling it a win. All right. Well, uh, they haven't said much for a little bit. <clears throat> so I encourage you to go get more Popey and Wimpy because you're probably missing them right now. I know I do. I know. And they had a really good episode on Thursday, where they were first with the Linus news. And uh, they had a fill-in for Wimpy and uh, Jesse, and he did great. It was great to hear Jesse again, and he was on there. And 
I miss Wimpy, though. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. But it was a good show, nonetheless. Another excellent edition of the Ubuntu Podcast, Ubuntu Podcast. Go check that out. Go get more Wes Payne, techsnap.systems, and at Wes Payne on the Twitters, P-A-Y. Any. Not uh, not P-A-I. Down right. Right? Get it straight. No, it's classier with the Y. I got to say. I got to say. Uh, and I'm at Chris LES. The network is at Jupiter Signal. And of course, everything we talked about today is linked at linuxunplugged.com slash 273. So if you want to find something we talked about, grab a tool. Oh, we got all the links this week. So, I mean, yeah, we, unlike we last take all week. the time no. to add them. So you got to go click on them. Somebody it. better click them. If you have got a great app pick, too, we didn't have one this week, let us know. Let us know. Yeah, just take all the cool software that you find and hurl it at us. I would. Rapid fire style. I and would. we'll sort through it. Jeez, that would be great. That would be great. Also, call back to last week's episode, used our Jack Audio setup on the road to record Linux Action News. It worked out great. We were crushing it, so those scripts checked out in production. Good work, Mr. Payne. All right, thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Unplugged Program. And we'll see you right back here next Tuesday. playing around with a new to-do manager, Todoist. We talked about that yes, a little bit. Yes, we have. But people have been asking me, well, what if I don't want something as sophisticated as Todoist? I just want it to essentially make to-dos in plain text. Well, I found this really cool one. Um, there's this uh, little-known Twitter account that you can follow that will sometimes tweet new applications. <gasps> Nobody knows about it. It's my little secret. It's Ooh. the uh, at Snapcraft.io Twitter account. And it tweeted Hello. about... hey And it tweeted about Taskbook... Some mysterious individual has discovered this and uh, let us all know. So you can snap install Taskbook, and uh, it is a text-based to-do manager. You get a chance to actually play with it before you tweet about it, Popey, <laughs> because it looks really oh, good. No, I didn't actually. I, <laughs> I, I, I did the bare bones of installing a, oh, that looks good. Yeah, <laughs> it then, does. Then... It does actually look quite good. It's, um, it's sort of that perfect blend of syntax highlighting, text-looking, kind of console-based looking kind of text. Ed, uh, and task. with like a rich command line interface, mm-hmm. which are my two of my favorite things. I know. I did um, switch. Um, I, I'm going to look out for your um, your post about uh, Dropbox because I've switched away from Dropbox to SyncThing. So I'm, I'm using SyncThing again across all my machines, and I love it. So why SyncThing and not, um, you know, something like C-File or NextCloud? Because SyncThing is kind of complicated. Uh, not really. Uh, next, uh, all I did with um, Sync Thing was snap install Sync Thing, run it, and then it um, it discovered the other machines on my LAN. It said, "Do you want to add this one?" I went, "Yep." Mm. Went, what about this one? Yep. And I just added them all, and they all synchronized with each other. And I just drop files in a folder, and I'm done. So it's not that much harder than Dropbox, to be honest. I gotta try that again. I always had problems with the discovery not working here at the studio. So I, I mean, ah. yeah, and it's a snap now. So that also is nice yep. because the other issue I had was my sync thing systems would lose version sync if you'll allow the yes. terminology. Yeah, they get out of sync with each other, don't they? But that seems like with snaps, that wouldn't really be yeah. as much of a problem. 
Hmm. Hmm. All right. I'll give it a go again. I will. I, that that actually is very encouraging because sync things pretty nice. Yeah, there was a long time where sync thing was like half of my personal infrastructure of yeah. getting things around. I I should do that again. It feels it like worked a, really well. I just stopped using it, but it, it wasn't because it wasn't working. No, it's like a real network file system. It's like everything's available on all you your machines. Put it somewhere. There it is. They over sync there. to each other. Yeah. Peer to peer. If I remember right, you can also do like proxying. So if you had like yes. a sync thing in a DigitalOcean droplet, it might get around some network issues. See, that's I did yeah. try that for a while, but then it just that also stopped working. And this is what huh. made me lose faith. And I, I just, I, I guess I, I wouldn't say lose faith, but this is what made me reconsider using sync thing. Was I had these issues where randomly they wouldn't discover each other, or maybe I could see a local system, but I couldn't see the one in the droplet. Or I actually the problem I'd often have is I could see the droplet funny enough, but I couldn't see my local boxes and, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, yeah. yep, yep. But again, this is ages ago. The only problem I've had with it, with machines not discovering each other, is because um, the machine that couldn't see the others was had an IPv6 address. Uh, I was going to say it wasn't using the same DNS server. Yeah, well, it, well, it was it was using a different protocol to talk, and so it was looking for the others on IPv6. And there, no, none of my machines have IPv6, so yeah. I just disabled IPv6 everywhere, and now everything's working sweet. 